more than anything is just a horse that won't quit. There's no way he finishes. I owe him the chance. Get up. I'm Tim Finley, and this is To Live With Honor. Chapter 20 Heroes Do you give the horse his strength? Or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He paused fiercely, rejoicing in his strength, and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and shield. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still. trumpet sounds. Job 39, 19-24 The grass at Remington Park racetrack sparkled like a billion tiny stars in the cool April dew. The stables bustled with clanging stall doors, squeaky wheelbarrows, trainer-owner discussions, clopping hooves, and the screeches of whinnying horses. Each long two-lane stable buzzed with dozens of worker bees mucking stalls, feeding, walking horses, and trailering horses to and fro. I reached my right hand into my jeans pocket and pulled out my plastic ID card. My leather trail hat cast a hard shadow against the white card. Owner, it read. 
I clamped the card to the left drawstring of my black hoodie. Do I look like an owner? You look like a hobo Indiana Jones. Well, at least you know who he is. I know, I'm out of place. But I really don't care anymore. That's our place. Out of place. That's right. This hobo has one horse. And all the bajillion dollar horses here have to share the track with him. And I've already placed my bets. I cradled the new camera around my neck, awaiting the first shutter clicks, capturing a horse I used to know. Babe, do me a favor. I work here. Wait a while before you get us both kicked out. I felt like a rambunctious mutt puppy running rampant through the Westminster show floor. Eyes wide, tongue flapping, tail wagging. And I guess I must have looked the part. I had as much business in the stables as I had at the Jones auction house two years prior. My eyes reflected the endless twinkles of dew as we entered the door to the stable. Brilliant sunlight cast a wall of shadow across the open stable door, hiding the details inside. Squinting, I discerned that our trainer, David, stood at the doorway of the first stall. As we crossed the threshold, pungent scents of sweaty horse and manure sent memory signals to my brain. I smiled as these once offensive odors tricked my brain with some sort of warm familiarity. I guess that's what defines a horse person. My eyes adjusted from the sun, and I saw the silhouette of a horse. A horse backed into the corner of his stall. The horse's head faced away from the door, tugging hay from a feeder. Honor? I spoke it just a decibel above a whisper. He heard it. The horse's head snapped to the left as his ears lunged at my voice. Warm, pitch eyes doubled in size as his about face slung his massive torso toward the gate. I stood aghast, feet petrified in the dusty entrance. Oh my... I didn't finish my thought. I didn't need to. I didn't know that body, but I knew those eyes. I uprooted my feet, dashed to the gate, flung the latch up, and ripped the door to the side. I scratched furiously against his shoulder muscles as Honor tugged mouthfuls of sweatshirt off my shoulder and bobbed his head. His face radiated beneath perked ears. I examined all this newly constructed muscularity and size. Does he ever stop growing? This is crazy! I turned to David as he readied his gear for Honor's work. How tall is he? Oh, I'd say he's probably 17 hands, or at least pretty close to it. With as much as he eats, I'm surprised he's not 18. <laughs> Fatty McFat face. I continued scratching as he chewed on my camera strap. Hey, watch the camera, kid. This thing costs more than you did. When I left for the desert, Honor's gangly body had the minimum muscularity required to keep his skeleton in an upright position. Nothing about Honor had inspired aesthetic or athletic respect. He collided with fences. He tripped over his own legs. His amorphous body looked like it had been piecemealed from 50 different horses. What I saw before me was not the horse I left behind. The night of the auction, I came home with an unkempt piece of abstract horse art. Michelangelo could not have sculpted a more perfect horse than the one standing before me. Trimmed hooves provided a pedestal for granite columns wrapped in chiseled vining muscles. Sinewy shoulders hulked out from proud withers. Sharp cheekbones streamlined back into a stern jaw. His once meager neck now boasted a raised top line from which grew a salon-quality trimmed mane thanks to Missy's grooming talents. 
the noticeable ribs of an abandoned colt hid behind svelte muscular contours and firm abdominals that ascended upward to his flank. Honor's famously narrow ass now flexed with speed skater prowess. <laughs> Look, he's got an ass. I didn't even think that was possible. I ran my hand down the front of his neck to his chest and felt the scar buried between curtains of fleshy pectorals. A solemn understanding flooded my heart. I stopped laughing. In that quiet moment, I was both humbled and proud in a way no one could change or take away. I looked again at Honor's eyes, his one unchanged feature. I asked my father once, do you believe it now? I asked him with sunken and tired eyes. In this moment with Honor, I understood how my father must have felt. I knew what he saw when he saw me in that uniform. I remembered the way Honor glared, soaked in blood, as he willed himself up on wobbling legs. I remembered the way he rested his head on my shoulder at the hospital. I removed my hat for a moment and rested my forehead against his shoulder. I believe it. David hurried through the gate, saddle in hand, and slung it over Honor's back. Well, you ready to see your horse run? I pulled back from Honor and evaluated him one more time, crowned a hoof and laid one last glance on his scar. I replaced my hat, and I smiled at David. <laughs> yes. We drove to the grandstand side of Remington, and parked in the grass toward the north end of the home stretch, a hundred yards from the starting gate. David circled Honor behind the gates, keeping the excited horse's mind occupied and focused. The months of training Missy invested in Honor paid dividends in moments like these. The repeated slamming of gates opening, horses dashing away, and spirited outbursts from other horses distracted even me from setting up my camera. A winter-like overcast drifted overhead, blocking out the sun, and chilled the breeze pouring down the straightaway. Still not adjusted to the Oklahoma weather, the abnormal April cold felt doubled down. My quivering hands struggled with the camera controls and the tripod. Before this, his final qualifying work, Honor finished no better than bottom half of his competition, turning in abysmal times just a fraction off the slowest pace. For a gloating father, though, beating any horse proved Honor's star potential. I had hopes for Honor's work that day. Hopes like, I hope he doesn't trip over his own shadow. I hope he doesn't stop to eat and field grass, and I hope he doesn't die. I felt like my expectations were fair. But this was honor, and he gets a vote. Through the zoom of the lens, I watched David ease a focused horse into the gate. Horses on either side of honor bounced and squirmed with adrenaline, but ice coursed through honor's veins. Three horses entered the chutes, honor into the middle. His ears twitched to the sides, and then locked forward. His head, flushed with icy blood, froze. Unblinking eyes fixed a thousand yards away. Honor was a statue, and so was I. The 
gates flung open and honor shot out. Unprepared, I rushed to press the record button. Ice melted into napalm and his hind legs triggered the firing pin. Honor's mouth smashed into the bit as David balanced atop him. I wrapped clumsy hands around the focus, desperate to keep pace with the oncoming match race. Horse number three fell behind out of the gate. Honor ripped at the soil with thrashing hooves. His face shimmered flashes of a dragon's visage, a furrowed brow and flaring nostrils. He snarled as smoke trailed from his nose. Horse one, a dapple gray, struggled to keep the bay at bay. Honor's hooves smashed into the earth and sprayed dirt as rhythmic artillery impacts. Neck and neck, the two roared toward the camera, the gray leading by just a nose. An earthquake shook the camera as the dueling chargers scorched past. I looked up from the camera for a split second. That split second expanded into infinity. I could hear his heart pound in my own chest. I didn't feel cold. Honor inched forward against the gray horse's lead, his tail a serpentine flag whipping behind him. His ears flattened into pointed horns and his chest hinted at a glow of flame. In the kick out of the next stride, Honor's nose eased past the grays. I squeezed the camera and slung it to the right. I expected the camera to melt in my hands. A few seconds later, the two raced away from the camera behind a spray of dirt. The rumble subsided. As they approached the turn, I lost them in the camera's view. My hands chilled and I was cold again. The wind returned and iced my ears until they ached. A remnant of sweat trickled down my cheek. I turned to Missy as Honor entered the backstretch near the stable entrance, out of sight. Maybe he is a dragon? Thank God he doesn't have wings. We have to pull him out of the power lines. What we didn't know, what we couldn't see from our viewpoint, what we wouldn't know until later that evening, was the full fury of our dragon. Honor didn't just beat the gray horse. Thirty-one horses worked that day. Honor beat them all. Do you think anyone else can see it? I sat at the kitchen table, staring at the screen on the back of the camera, watching the video from days prior. See what? Missy mumbled through a mouthful of granola cereal as she dug her spoon into her mug. His scar. I can see it because I know it's there. I know what I'm looking for. But can a horse person just in passing? Do you think they would see it? I mean, I, I don't think I would. I replayed the video over and over, focusing on his chest as the monstrous bay flashed past the camera. Well, it's not obvious. I don't know. She paused, dangling a pensive spoon. I guess I'm kind of with you. I think I noticed because I know. Yeah, but would anyone else? No. I don't think anyone would. He doesn't look anything like he did. It's crazy to think that less than a year ago you could have shoved a baseball into his chest, and now it's hardly noticeable. 
She turned smug. I'm pretty good at fixing horses, what can I say? You're something, Watson. Your face is something, Finley. I feel like even that, that only we would see it has some sort of purpose, some sort of weight. I mean, all of this- Tim, I know. Newsflash, I've been here the whole time. Why are you being so snarky? She set her mug on the table and fixed her eyes on it, fidgeting. I want to believe everything you believe about this, but I feel like I'm somehow on the outside looking in. I feel like I'm the only one worrying about what could happen. I don't want you to be wrong about all this. I don't think I could handle it. I see horses broken at the track so often. It's awful, and I don't really think your heart is prepared to see it either. You're invested in it, heart and soul, and I get what it means to you. I don't want to ruin that for you, but what you're thinking and feeling is between you and honor. What I'm feeling is the reality that it could cost us both our beloved horse and cost me the man you've become. She looked up, more resolved. I was the one who found him that day. I loaded him into the trailer. I rehabbed him. I wrote him in the show. I know and understand every bit of how unbelievable this is. When you mentioned racing, Jen and I both thought it was madness. Hell, everyone with any horse sense thought it was insane. Only the man with zero horse sense thought it was a good idea. Finding a trainer was miraculous all on its own, yet here we are, a day away from yet another honor miracle. You believed it, and you were right to believe it. I just hope we aren't getting spoiled with miracles and the odds catch up with us. I wish I had your faith. I wish I didn't know what I know and could just enjoy this roller coaster with you. You hate roller coasters. I don't hate them. She sat upright, defensive. I just don't like riding the same one ten times in a row. She stared at me. <laughs> that was so awesome. She raised a judging eyebrow. Hey, there were no lines. I had the whole thing to myself. I waited for hours in those lines as a kid. I was making up lost ground. The reference to our Silver Dollar City trip just prior to deployment warmed a conversation that began to feel icy. I'm just saying, ten reps on a roller coaster and you look like a kid at Chuck E. Cheese. Look, I know what you're feeling. You get that roller coaster look when you talk about honor. I love that about you. You two are peas in a pod. I knew it the day I came home and you couldn't figure out that halter. I knew it when you sat on the fence scratching his back. I think that's where I understood something else was happening. I pointed it out to you, because you wouldn't have known the difference. I hate being that nagging voice of reason no one likes to listen to, but as real as Honor's story is, so are the horrible things that could happen. Again, I wish I could share that feeling. I went silent for a while, absorbing her words. She was right, and she deserved her words. But I believed in mine, too. I took a deep breath and broke my silence.
Nature made the horse, and man made fences. We build fences to keep the unwanted out and to keep safe what we have. We fence out what we fear and fence in what we fear for. We construct them to ease those fears and buy into that illusion of safety. But in truth, not only do fences not work in that regard, it's the fences themselves that cause the hurt. At a glance, it seems like senseless risk to take the fences away. But the only thing that ever really hurt honor were fences. Missy looked out the window and into the empty paddock. The first thing I ever said to Honor was an apology for not being better. My eyes widened as my breath tightened. I remembered the wrinkled paper with his name printed on it. I sat transfixed as I felt the drum thump in my chest. My mouth dried. I, I think I know why I went to the auction. I'm made a promise. I know, and you've been true to that. No, no, not to him. To someone else. To live. With honor. And I thought I had broken it. I think... I looked up at Missy. A blanket of confusion twisted my expression. My jaw fell slack. Was the providence of it all that I went there to get him? Or did he go there to get me? Oh my god. I shielded my eyes with a visor hand. Memories folded fifteen times, one atop the next, all in perfect order. Webs of nerves conducted the message throughout my body. I didn't save him. That was never the purpose. She cocked her head, confused. I, I know. I know, but I was wrong. So, so wrong. What do you mean? I spoke to my shoes. The same shoes I stared at during the auction. I, I mean, I knew, but I didn't understand. How did I not see this sooner? This can't be real. I looked up. Let me ask you something. Why do you ride horses? Why do I ride? She looked incredulous. Because I love it. Riding is statistically one of the most dangerous sports. Hundreds die every year, thousands are injured. Hell, look at your sternum. Even with your expertise, you didn't come out unscathed. Yet you and millions of other people throw a saddle on the back of a half-ton rocket with a mind of its own and think nothing of it. Sure, wear a helmet, train, whatever. But at the end of it all, you accept the likelihood that on a long enough timeline, you're going to be seriously injured. Equestrians ride every day, it's their idea of normal. Just like you drive to work in rush hour traffic. Someone else who isn't a rider will look at the statistics and say, ah, hell nah. But regardless of how docile the horse really is, nothing is going to convince the non-rider that the horse is safe. And being afraid of a horse doesn't make the horse dangerous. It just means you're afraid of horses. We choose our risks for the life we want in return. And whether we know it or not, our hearts have already made those choices. 
Why does the warrior risk the fight? What if I told you I wanted you to stop riding? What if I said you're too valuable to me as a wife to risk on something so dangerous? That's grounds for divorce. Why? Because that's what I do. I ride horses. It's all I've ever done, and the most important thing in my life besides you. I smiled at her. Okay, good. Now that we're on the same page, um, I need you to stick with me on this. I've got a lot to say, and this is going to get heavy. But all this needs to be said. Now. I want you to zoom out several thousand light years. What do you see? A glowing galaxy of billions of specks of light against a canvas of black vacuum. You, me, Honor, Millie Moo, Willoway, we're revolving around that supermassive black hole in the center there. Somewhere out on one of those faint little twinkles convinced that what we're doing that day matters. But does it? From where we're floating, can you tell? We evaluate risk in the most myopic, worthless ways. Eat food you don't enjoy so you live a long and healthy life. Don't do that thing you love because you could break a bone. Let's say you buy into all that lovely crap and they all prove 100% accurate. You live to 150. That's your accomplishment. Duration of life. So what? In those 150 years, what did you do? What mountains did you brave? What cause did you take up? What adventure did you pursue? How did minimizing your risks contribute to fulfilling the chance you've been given? Was that your purpose? To just live 150 years? And the universe, 50,000 light years away, what did the universe hear from you? Because you existed an extra 60 years. What difference to time and space is 90 years from 150? Until we can speak in aliens, starting with at least a B, trying to value life on, on a quantity is a fool's endeavor. So logically, we're left only valuing quality. So let me rephrase my question. I adjusted in my seat, leaning forward towards Missy, hand stretched out, reaching for her heart. If you were given a chance to shine bright enough to be noticed 50,000 light years away, knowing full well it would whittle a quantity of time from your existence, would you take that chance? Would you choose it? It depends. Exactly. Would you risk greatly to ride at the peak of your sport, the Olympics, the Rolex, the WEG? Of course. Knowing it could kill you, maim you, or ruin you, you would risk for that thing that ignites you. I mean, what else would we be doing here? Without it, what else is there, really? The comfort and safety of fences. And that is actually how civilization came to be. But it is not how civilization advanced. And history pays no mind to those who lived brilliantly docile lives inside the fences. There's more to it than just, life is short. There's more to it than stating the obvious with cliches. We exist in a moment so fleeting, so infinitesimally small. It's not just that life is short, it's that we ought to be living with unbridled urgency, like our lives hinge on our every moment, because they do. Everything you see, every bit of the universe you can perceive is temporary. 
and smaller than measure. And any value we affix to life stares the futility of permanence in the face. My point is, out here amongst the vacuum of space, where by the time light reaches us, humans may not even exist, what value does length of life have if time is irrelevant? It has none. The length of life is irrelevant, which means we've been undervaluing quality with equal foolishness. But here's the script flipper. There is a way we can beat permanence. We beat it in two ways. The first is to leave chances in our wake. We live in those chances forever. The other side of that same coin, and the other way we beat permanence, is to shine in those chances others left for us. If we shine bright enough to blast a few photons out into the universe, they'll carry on at the speed of light outward to infinity. And that is to touch the face of God. So is the tragedy to die young or to die old and have nothing to show? If time is irrelevant, then the greater sin would certainly have to be squandering the chance. If you were the creator who sees infinity, what would catch your attention? When I look back now, all I can think is how stupid and naive I was. If I'm gonna be if I'm gonna be honest, it's embarrassing. I had all these glorious aspirations of being some sort of a war hero and having the bards sing my name. I was just some stupid kid with a good heart, which I guess is a start. But the thing is, is I, I wasn't good. I was so compulsively fixated on being a good man when I was just dumb. Knowing what I know now, what this horse has shown and done, there's no way I could have ever been the kind of good I had in mind. Holy shit. What? Heroes. They don't take chances, they give them. I, I thought I gave him one, but he actually gave me a chance to be one. And in that, he was mine. And the world is better for it. I didn't rescue him by bringing him home. I didn't save him from death. That's impossible. In fact, because I didn't know shit about horses, the one thing I had to offer was just the chance to live. And that was the only thing I promised him. A hero doesn't save something by putting it between fences. Heroes take the fences away. Heroes. Well, I thought I had a pretty good idea what that meant, too. I met a bunch of them a long time ago. My heroes. Guys I thought of as heroes, and still do, just for different reasons now. They were men of honor. Why? Because they were dead. And that was my job. I saw bravery and gallantry with no regard to personal safety, and and a lot of shit luck. Guys who died not in the throes of combat, but 
in the benign melee of circumstance. Guys who had they just been standing three inches to their left would, would still be alive. But they were dead. And so they had honor. And that made them heroes. And I believed that. But for a hero, risk and bravery and glory, none of that shit matters. It's about the chance. Uh, let's say a man dives into a burning car to pull someone to safety. By braving the flames, he isn't taking a chance, he's giving a chance. It's the chance that makes the hero, not the fire. The fire only represents the threat that the person in the car couldn't escape. But death is always imminent and always inescapable. Everyone's gonna die, eventually, both the hero and the victim. Time's irrelevant, right? So what does the hero buy in charging into the flames? The hero pulls the person out and thereby gives the person a chance. The fire of circumstance happens to everyone. Maybe a hero comes along and maybe one doesn't. And if you're looking for a hero and one ain't around, you're stuck making one. And that comes with a choice. Chances and choices. There are no good people or bad people. Only people and their circumstances and choices. I was fucked up for a long time. Maybe I still am. And that's my fault. Because I chose to go to Dover. I chose to start that chain reaction. I chose to run headlong into that valley armed with idiotic bravery. Because I thought that's where I'd find honor. Instead, I lost myself in that valley. I I saw and experienced things that make an atheist pray and a Christian curse God. And then I wallowed in it, threw myself on the altar like some martyr or sacrificial lamb, and called that honor. Those shadows in that valley poison your mind. In every ceremony I did, I reveled in death and I drank that poison. But something went wrong. I didn't die. Honor and death, they were synonymous. And I still lived. I never died a hero's death. And rather than just leave the valley when the fighting ended, I stayed there. Hacking away at enemy corpses. Beating dead horses. I stood coated in blood as the only survivor and I begged to be cut down. But the dead don't suffer the living. Not nearly as much as we suffer them. Looking back, I feel bad for that kid. Bad for the pain he was addicted to. You clutched that pain with white knuckles and you refused to let it go like a miser in his pile of gold. That pain... That's where that kid got his purpose. And leaving the valley hurts more than staying. 
because there's shame in leaving as the only survivor. And more courage is required to leave than the bravery required to enter. What's more, you can't leave the valley until you forgive yourself for surviving it. The valley lies. It tells you that honor only exists within those shadows. It's a lie. There's no honor or heroism in that valley. There are no heroes there. Only death and awfulness. Honor sits peacefully atop a hill overlooking the valley. And you have to leave to find it. And the only chance one has exists in leaving the valley of the shadow of death. But this is the cold truth about it. Honor is not in the valley. But you do have to go through the valley to get to it. What do you mean? When Honor fell to the barn floor, he went somewhere. And then he came back. He wasn't the same. You saw it. He was never the same. Same horse, same personality, but his choices, they were never the same again. We call him a dragon. He destroyed the fence night one. He was dangerous and vile and destructive. By all accounts, he was a bad horse. He's still all those things. He still has the capacity for all those things, except now he chooses not to. And we call him good. He is the same. His choices are different. His choices make him good. He couldn't be good if he didn't have the choice. To be good requires having the capacity for evil but opting for the former. Without that choice, there's very little difference between morality and cowardice. If you're good because you don't have a choice, you're not good. You're just a hobbit, naive and harmless, dancing inside fences at the Shire. If you haven't been faced with darkness powerful enough to corrupt, you can't call yourself incorruptible. Honor requires entering the valley. It requires entering its shadows and learning something of malevolence. To get to the heart of the mountain, you have to walk into Smaug's lair. To defeat a dragon, you must know and be something of a dragon. When I found him in those dark shadows of that auction house, in his worst circumstances, he was drenched in tragedy and malevolence, and his only weapons were fear and violence. It was the sparkle of defiance that caught my attention, that even in the darkness there was something about him that chose not to partake in it. But he learned to be dangerous. He learned about dragons from a dragon. 
and then he chose to leave the valley because he had learned to withstand tragedy and malevolence. He doesn't fear because he has become something of a dragon. He is no less a monster than, than when he came home, but now he breathes fire by choice, not by circumstance. I looked up at Missy with heavy, wet eyes. In wretched shadows, I found a horse. Or maybe I had it backwards the whole time. I too was in those shadows. I thought he was out of place, believed he had no business being there, that he was better than that awful place, that he deserved better, even, even by me. And I wonder now if he didn't think the same thing. I was so stunned when I read his name. But how stunned would he have been to know that the man who blindly bought him was an honor guard? Gravity is a two-sided equation. It was the one night by aligned stars that we both happened to be there by chance. All of this by chance. I always looked at it as I entered into the shadows to pull him out. But that hasn't been the case, has it? I sat silent for a long moment. It's not that I'm suddenly a man of honor, or even a good man for that matter. It's that I've been given a chance to choose it with every moment of my life. Honor's race tomorrow isn't about the race. Did you know Secretariat holds the record for 13 furlongs? Yeah, I know, I know, Belmont is only 12. But what most people don't know is Secretariat also broke and retains the record for 13 furlongs in that same race. Ronnie Turcott struggled for two furlongs to get him to stop running. I have to believe it. if Ronnie had dropped the reins, Secretariat would still be running laps. Well, Secretariat's dead, so... My point exactly. My response caught her off guard, and she shifted in her seat. Death rides an endurance horse, so I, I guess he rides an Arab, I'm assuming. But his pale horse doesn't lose. Ever. Not even Secretariat could outrun him. I know the quality of Death's steed better than any. But I know how he can be beaten. I watched the pale horse lose against Honor. Honor the horse or Honor the word? I smiled and said nothing. Isn't once enough? Hell, three times technically. Can't we just say, great race, Death, we win. Hopefully catch you much later? Death wins the moment our chances run out. He wins by getting us to focus on staying alive and safe as long as possible, by convincing us to stay inside the fences. Death loses each time we put value into those chances, when we fill them with those passions that ignite us, when we break free of the fences. We can't beat death in an endurance race. 
which is why death always wants us choosing races where we're trying to add furlongs to the conditions. But we can beat him one passionate sprint at a time, and death can never take those wins away. We've been doing it all wrong for millennia. Tombs, memorials, monuments, the goddamn pyramids. If we invested even just a fraction of the energy in honoring life, where could we be? A running horse exhales dragon fire. No horse ever befriended a fence, and no fence ever returned the favor. A bird flies, a fish swims, a willoway snores in the doorway 18 hours a day, a horse runs. Honor should have been dead three times. At best, he might have been able to limp around the yard until we felt enough mercy to put him down. When we thought our horse was dead, he stood. He should have been dead, but he isn't. Maybe it was a miracle, or maybe he just chose it. Maybe he is the only hero he ever needed. His life is what he's made it. No one, not even me, not even I, would have believed any of this. But what our precepts and biases tell us doesn't define the greatness or potential outside of what we believe. We only grant it the opportunity to be revealed. And now, my mind drifted away for a moment. I stared out to the single fence post, the one with wire pulled down from the top. I brought my eyes back to Missy's. Missy sat expectant and still. And now, I'm gonna do one last thing for him. Even if it kills him, the one thing I promised him and the one thing for which every horse in a stall waits. What? Take away the fences and drop the reins. You've yelled at him for two years to stop running. She gave a weak smirk. And now I dare you to tell him he can't. Missy shifted in her seat again, tapping a nervous finger on the side of her mug. She looked out the kitchen window into the empty side paddock. The April sun cut hard shadows through the sycamore over Honor's water trough. It's supposed to be crystal clear tomorrow. A little chilly. I set the camera on the table and pulled her attention back with my eyes. Her reservations weren't going away. I reached across the table and pried her hand from her security blanket mug. Her eyes darted back and forth between my hand and my eyes. I don't want to watch him die. She started to cry, and a tear fell from her cheek. I cupped her face in my hand and wiped away her tear with my thumb. Miss, 
we already did. There can be no tragedy or malevolence tomorrow, no matter what happens. And that, that's why I went to the auction. I'm not a man of honor, but I do get the chance to choose it. And tomorrow, we get to watch him live. We get to celebrate as honor relishes what so few of us will ever enjoy. Which is? To live amongst the stars and outshine them. To shout echoes against the walls of eternity. The chance. The chance to live with honor. <laughs>